Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside Horror Show. Well, we're in Rhode Island. Rhode Island. The ocean state. I don't know much about Rhode Island. I've been there a couple times. I've been there. Yeah, I, I right. like going there. It's a really lovely place. I love place. Rhode Island. Uh, the people are delightful and friendly. Uh, Dell's Lemonade, that's one thing I love from. And Narragansett Beer, that's from. One of my favorite places um, is Buskers, I think it's called. In hmm. um, It's like in Newport. And it's got alcoholic milkshakes. What? Yeah, I had this Reese's Peanut Butter Cup one that was really good. There was also like a chocolate chip mint one that sounded good. That's something to think about. Yeah. I know they also drink something called coffee milk. What the hell is coffee milk? I guess it's like a really milky coffee, but it's like a pretty ubiquitous in Rhode Island. Milky Milky Cocoa Puff, like the Black Eyed Peas. <laughs> milky Milky Cocoa Puff. They were actually in Rhode Island drinking milk, coffee, <laughs> milk, coffee milk. Um, what else? Uh, home of H.P. Lovecraft. Yes. Yeah. Who, although a terrible writer, he created some really, really great stuff. Well, yeah, I always like have that thing when I'm reading... H.P. Lovecraft, I'm like, oh my god, I did not sign up for this dense Victorian... Oh, that yeah. was creepy! Exactly, yeah. I loved Supernatural set it back, uh, I said it best when they were um, talking about him in the one episode, and the demon was like, what, no, all that was real. H.P. Lovecraft couldn't write his way out of a paper bag. <laughs> <laughs> so, for our first Rhode Island stop, you're going to tell us a delightful, perhaps not so delightful, thing could be dark... Well, yeah, it's several Story? stories, actually. Oh. This week, we're doing things a little differently. My story will take place all over the state of Rhode Island, so I can't really give you a good intro as such. The state of Rhode Island might be small, but it certainly isn't short on cold cases, which leads me to believe that Rhode Island may have an active or at least uncaught serial killer. You know what I heard recently? Hmm. That you have like a 50% chance of getting away with murder. In the U.S. currently, based huh. on, like, our arrest rates and prosecution rates for murder. That really that, sucks. That's creepy, right? Yeah, I don't like that very much. Sorry, just, like, the cold case. I'm like, I know Rhode Island's small, but, like, maybe that's why. Maybe there's somebody who keeps rolling maybe. sevens when it that's, comes to yeah. getting caught for murder. <laughs> very weird. I actually wanted to do my story on a particular cold case, but when I saw there was only one article with any information, it sent me down this weird rabbit hole of several cold cases, which all seemed interesting. So before I get started, I'm just going to say that if anyone listening has any information on any of the cases I'm about to discuss, please contact the police. And if you would rather give your information anonymously, you can contact Warwick Crime Stoppers at 732-TIPS or 732-8477. They didn't give me an area code on the website, but I'm assuming that's 401. Probably. Uh, anyway, I'm going to jump right in with the story that started my journey down the rabbit hole. Whoosh. <laughs> this case is actually 39 years old and has yet to be solved and takes place in Lincoln, Rhode Island, which is in northeastern Rhode Island, just north of Providence. Okay. This is the story of a girl named Roseanne Robinson. Roseanne came from a big family of eight children and was described by one of her sisters as like a free spirit. She lived in Massachusetts with her family, but moved to Providence when she was 17 after finishing high school. Her siblings also said that she liked to play the guitar and would like dance for her family as a child, as kids do. Mm -hmm. I remember mm -hmm. when I was a kid, I used to sing for my family and be like, yeah. okay, we're going to put on a show and I'm going to sing, you know, <laughs> so everyone sit on the couch. And of course it was hymns from church that I was singing. Lots of Latin, you know. 
because those are the songs I knew. Now, Roseanne was still 17 at the time of her disappearance and had only lived on her own for about a week when this happened. Oh, that's... That's really shitty luck. Yeah, that's terrible. On June 3rd, 1980, she was headed to a party and decided to get there by the same means that she always used, according to those who knew her. She was going to hitchhike. Oh, girl. Yeah, I know, right? I'm going to stop here briefly and just say to everyone listening, please do not hitchhike. I've done it. You've probably done it in your younger years, but it's just not safe. You never know who you're getting in the car with. And the same goes for picking up a hitchhiker. Mm -hmm. That person might be a serial killer that you're picking up, so don't pick up hitchhikers either. Be safe. Okay, PSA over. Okay. Anyway, that party that she was trying to attend was an anniversary party for her sister, who had just recently, she'd gotten married last year, so it was the first anniversary. Roseanne gets picked up by these three guys who are headed out of town, and it's pouring down rain. She gets in their car, and they talk about the weather for a little as they drive down I-95. Now, this is when she tells them she's headed to Attleboro, which is about 20 to 25 minutes away in Massachusetts. They tell her that they aren't going that way, but decide to just drop her off under an overpass so she can get out of the rain. Sadly, these three were the last people to see her alive, or at least that's what the source I used originally said. It was kind of weird. Ready for the really shitty part of all this? Mm -hmm. The party she was trying to attend had actually been rescheduled, uh, but no one was able to tell her because she didn't have her phone set up yet. Ugh. Yeah. And for any younger listeners out there, we're talking about landline phones because it was 1980 and no one really had cell phones yet. Mm -hmm. They were in existence, but only rich yuppies really had them, and they were these big, bulky things that were, like, uh, the size of, if not bigger, than your standard cordless telephone. Wouldn't you also have, like, a battery pack with them sometimes that was, like, a satchel? It was just crazy (laughs) and really just not good. (laughs) I'm not trying to be condescending with that. I've just talked to people before that just uh, thought we always had cell phones. So I just wanted to clear that up. I had um, a conversation with a coworker once where I was talking to her about this girl that got in trouble in school for looking at porn, even though she wasn't trying to. Um, the teacher froze the computers when she was trying to check out the weather and typed in channel69.com <laughs> to try to find channel 69 news. But instead it was a porn site. And that's when he froze all the computers. <laughs> and the girl that I was talking to was like, why didn't she use her cell phone? I'm like, because we didn't really have them then. Uh, You're like, let me tell you about a time when we had dial-up modems. <laughs> exactly, yep. Okay, so back to the story. Uh, now, the same article that said that those guys who picked her up uh, were not going to Attleboro and all that also said later on in the article that they did take her to Attleboro and dropped her off at the Route 152 overpass. And that's when they witnessed from the rearview mirror another car picking her up directly after that. I know, same article, conflicting information. It's weird, but I figured I'd say both things. Yeah. The next day, her body was found by a group of kids who were playing behind the Lincoln Mall. The cause of death was determined to be strangulation, and a detective named Sean Gorman was quoted as saying that it was lucky that they found her as quickly as they did because otherwise there wouldn't be any evidence on the body. Yeah. Oddly enough, even though it had been raining, her body was completely dry. Ooh. Yeah. That's a weird little piece of information. That's very weird. They didn't know who she was at first, and it took a few weeks before Roseanne was identified, and it was actually the three guys who picked her up that night that were able to identify her. Oh, wow. Yeah. It gets a little weird here because when police were trying to get information on these men, they decided to jog their memories by hypnotizing them 
Okay. Yeah, and it did help. Interesting. I also I feel like that opens you up to so many. Like if you're hypnotizing somebody, it kind of like opens them up to like suggestion. Yeah, suggestibility where it might skew information, but it's like, was this car red? Okay, fine. Now in my head, the car is red because yeah, exactly. you suggested that to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, so hypnotism is a weird thing, and I doubt that it's admissible in court. Probably not. I'm um, sure a, a defense prosecutor or a defense attorney who hears that the witnesses are hypnotized would go to town. Oh my god, go yeah. To town. So there's all that weirdness. Uh, one of the guys was able to identify the car from this hypnotism that picked her up as a Pinto. Okay. Uh, the examination of her body also gave them some DNA in the form of what I'm assuming was skin underneath her fingernails from trying to fight off her attacker. They did test this DNA against the database, but came up with absolutely nothing. 39 years later, Sean Gorman and two other detectives are the only ones from back then that are still on the force today, and or at least as recent as that article, which I don't remember when it was written. But they're trying to, like reopen the case and finally give the family some closure. Yeah. Uh, part of what led me down the rabbit hole to the other stories I wanted to tell was that to help solve the crime, they actually made a deck of cold case playing cards uh, to like raise awareness of these crimes. Huh. And Roseanne is featured as the Jack of Spades. Interesting. I wonder how that works. Yeah. I don't... It's like a picture with like... It's a picture and then it says like a brief paragraph hmm. of like what happened to them. So it's an interesting thing. I don't know how well it's going to work, but I wish them the best. It kind of reminds me of like those stories you hear about, <clears throat> excuse me, decks of playing cards, where uh, for um, wanted criminals, they mm-hmm. would make like the like for gangsters and stuff in the twenties and thirties, they would make these, you know, most wanted playing card decks. That's pretty cool. I kind of want one of those yeah. now. That's pretty cool. That's all I have for her story, but I'm going to give you another number you can call with any information, and that number is one. 1- 877-RI-SOLVE. Our next story is Diane Drake, who, like Roseanne, was also murdered in 1980 and just a few months earlier on March 21st. Again, just like before, there was a storm rolling in with lots of rain and this time also snow because it was March in, you know, New England, which (laughs) is always crappy. Uh, Diane was in the same age range as Roseanne as well, being 19 years of age. This one takes place in Middletown, which is right next to Newport and is where I stay with my family when I go there. And that's why I sent you the airport Hojo text at like 1am last night. Yes, I did receive that and I laughed and I was like, I don't know how to respond. I'm going to go to bed now. (laughs) Yeah, that's because it's a Howard Johnson that I normally stay at. So, but Diane worked at a place called Photo Patio, which I'm not familiar with, but might not even be there anymore. Who knows? Uh, So she worked there at the time and was heading there on foot since her car had recently died and she didn't have another one yet. Her boyfriend's mother had offered her a ride to work, but she didn't take it. Her shift began at 2.30 p.m., but she never made it there. I'm actually going to take another break for a little PSA again. Always take the ride. (laughs) I don't care if it's down the block. Always take the ride when offered. I was... At the town fair one year, which they don't have anymore because there's too much violence. Oh. People always got shot or stabbed. Um, something always happened. But the fair itself is at the park that's like four blocks from my parents' house. Mm-hmm. We went up the street a bit to like the Taco Bell, which is probably another four blocks. So now I'm eight blocks away from home. Um, my friend's parents were going to pick us up. Mm-hmm. 
And he was like, hey, do you, do you want to ride? And I was like, oh, no, it's close. I'll just walk. It's mm-hmm. fine. Didn't think anything of it. So I was probably about like two, three blocks away from my house when all of a sudden there's this group of guys, a large group of guys who jumped me and beat the shit out of me. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. So I was luckily I was able to fight them off and get away. But I just should have every time I think about it, I'm like, I should have just taken the damn ride, you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So take the damn ride, everybody. Take the ride. PSA part two over. All right. The next morning, her body washed up on Easton's Beach, which, if I'm remembering correctly, is sadly my favorite one of the beaches in that area. It's either that one or second beach that I liked. Uh, Anyway, not important. Her body washed up on the shore and it was completely naked. The autopsy was able to find not one, not two, but three causes of death. Yeah. She was strangled, submerged in water, and had also suffered blunt force trauma. Another source stated though that there was no water present in her body so she wasn't submerged and that she may have suffered a broken neck not due to strangulation but that it was received post-mortem when she was dumped okay so maybe like she was strangled and when they dumped her body off something it that could be the impact of the water broke the bones post-mortem something like that i'm going to say now that along with uh never finding her killer they also never were able to find her clothes Either. Weird. Yeah, they have no idea what happened to them. She was only able to be identified by the jewelry that she was wearing. I don't know why, but I'm assuming her body may have been, like, bloated from being in the water. Could have been, yeah. Uh, The police, the FBI, um, psychics, and yet again a hypnotist. Okay, Rhode Island, whatever. Uh, The go-to in Rhode Island? Yeah. Worked together to try and solve uh, this case. And while I could find that police did question a man in 1980 and again in 2000... The info was hidden behind a dead link my first go-round, and then when I looked for it again, it was behind a paywall where I had to subscribe to something to see the information on my second try. I mean, I don't know how that goes. Yeah, I was not subscribing to, like, whatever weird newspaper it was that they wanted me to get (laughs) online. So, yeah, but the weird thing about the psychics is that there was supposedly, like, 27 volunteer psychics. That's crazy. I don't understand, but... Slow slow, uh, year for psychics in Rhode Island. I guess. Everyone had some free time on their hands. There's also a handwriting sample the police have found, but I wasn't able to find much on that. But they had a handwriting analysis, handwriting analyst. There we go. (laughs) Handwriting analyst. Look at it. And it showed, quote, characteristics of bad temper, irritability, impatience, depression, defiance, and barbaric behavior, end quote. Okay. Uh, my grandmother made us do, like, a thing that, like, analyzed our handwriting the one time. It's like, if it slants this way, it's this. If it goes this way, it's the other thing. And all this different yeah. stuff. It was interesting, but I didn't put much stock into it. I, I think it's interesting, too, when they talk about, like, the points where, like, the pen stops and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's like, you can tell how aggressive you're writing or by the pressure of the thing. And I'm like, well, I'm sure my handwriting would be delightful for someone to try to read. I press very hard, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently I'm very aggressive. I, I write very erratically. And Mine changes a lot. When I when I try to write nicely, it gets even worse. Oh really? <laughs> it's terrible. Like every time I have to write like a, like a card, and I always try to write like a sweet message to like my wife on like our anniversary or Valentine's Day, and it's always like looks either one like a child wrote it. Oh no! Because it's like perfect like fonty printing, mm-hmm. or it kind of 
is so poorly written that she'll start to read it and, get, and smile, and then I can tell my hand gets back, so her face kind of freezes like that She's for like, a second. What does this say? She's like, what's that word? I used to have to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's pretty. <laughs> it's it's something I struggle with, but yeah. it's neither here nor there. Well, they also found later on that she may have been bound at the wrists with like a scarf or something similar. Mm. Uh, the killer might have been left-handed. I don't know how they're judging that, but all it says is the killer might be left-handed. She may have been alive and still suffering after receiving uh, the blow to her larynx uh, for around six hours yet. Oh, that's terrible. Which would be horrible, so I hope that's not the case. There were two suspects in the case, but I don't have names for either of them. They just weren't anywhere that I looked. A lot of people feel that the police messed up the investigation into her death, and the autopsy missed a lot of things, such as a mole that she had and also a scar that she'd had from, I guess, childhood. Mm. Like, when, like, on the autopsy form, it has everything, like, every part of the body, and you go yeah. through and... You check off, like, distinct marks and things like things that. Things like that, exactly. So, that's... Yeah, they did not put any of those on there. So, it uh, seems almost like a bit of a rush job, kind of. Exactly. So, I don't know what was up with that. To make things creepier, Diane and a friend had gone to a psychic shortly before her death, and the reader told Diane that she had no future. <gasps> yeah. Oh, my God! Yeah. <laughs> that's... I've ever heard about going to a psychic. I know. Ooh. It's like, oh, honey, I can't see anything in your cards. It's really odd. There's just nothing there. Ugh. That would be so nerve-wracking. Yeah, no, that's horrible. That's all I really have for Diane since, like, um, these have seemed to be very, there were just very few articles written about them. Yeah, so it's just still a cold case, and they never were able to figure out if those two suspects were. That's what it seems like. Mm. It seemed like they really had someone they were looking at. Because they interviewed him twice. Yeah, but it didn't quite. But it didn't evidence. pan out. Yeah. yeah, I even checked like on this like cold case database, mm-hmm. and a lot of these aren't on the cold case database. Rhode Island. It's weird. I don't understand what's going on, but weird. Our next stop is Providence in May of 1985, with the death of a woman named Hillary Hellowell. This is one that I found the least information on, so it's a very short one. Hillary was 22 years old when she was found dead on a street in Providence, Rhode Island at 4.15 a.m. Her body was found by two brothers named Eric and Stephen Foss. She was completely clothed, um, but she didn't have any shoes. That was the only thing that was missing. She had no shoes. Uh, In one of the older news articles I was able to find on Reddit, the medical examiner said that she had, quote, injuries related to death. As one can sometimes yeah. get. What? What the actual <laughs> what? You're a professional, and I'm not, yet even I could tell you that a dead person usually has some sort of injury. <laughs> injury related to death. Yes. Wow. Okay. Yeah, Rhode Island, get yourself some new people to do autopsies, because apparently we've got someone slacking. Well, this was back in the 80s still, but I doubt they're still there. So the article also said that police think she was dead before being left on the sidewalk, which, yet again, seems like a duh thing to me. Yeah. Seems like she would have been placed there, not murdered there. Apparently, she didn't have any identification on her when they found her, and spent the they spent the better part of a day showing her picture to people before finally some friends were able to identify her. After sifting through a few news articles, thanks again, Reddit commenters, because that was the only thing that I was finding was on Reddit. Wow. People linking me to, like, original news articles and mm-hmm. stuff like that. But Google did, you know, did me yeah. dirty on this one. I found her cause of death was strangulation. 
They're able to figure out that earlier that day, she had been going to see her boyfriend, Daniel Barry, at his friend's apartment uh, where he was living at the time. That's literally all I have on her. I read a bunch of news articles that people had left in the comments on Reddit, and they were all just very vague, pretty much saying the same thing over and over again, and they just didn't say much in general. They did mention uh, they had some suspects, and they spoke with one of the suspect's lawyers, but the lawyer wouldn't even say who he was representing, which is just weird. Yeah. So I don't know if the guy saying he was a lawyer was the killer. I don't know. Who knows? So yet another woman who has been like abducted for a short period of time, then her body's discovered. Yep. Hmm. Our final stop today, at least for the true crime portion, is in Warwick in 1986, so a year later. Uh, her name is Kathy Perry. Not Katy Perry. <laughs> There's an H in there, guys. So Kathy, who was 20, uh, so in the same age range as the others still, had just finished work somewhere around 2 a.m. She stopped for gas, and we know this because a woman working behind the counter was someone Kathy had went to high school with, and she recognized her. So they talked for a bit, and Kathy told the girl that she was just going to go home and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. At 4 a.m. on Route 2 in Warwick, police found her car, which was a white Mercury Capri, abandoned near the old Kent County Courthouse. Okay. Uh, everything was still in the car, and the car was still running and with the heat on and the lights on. Weird. Yeah. Her purse, uh, which was also in the car on the passenger seat, still had $100 in it, so they knew this wasn't a robbery gone wrong or anything. Uh, they don't know why she stopped. There may have been, like, some sort of problem with the car, or they think maybe she uh, she stopped for someone and was dragged out of the car, like, stopped to yeah. help, possibly. Or kind of someone like maybe, a, like, flagged her down or something. Yeah, sort of like a, like a, I can't think of his name, very, very big serial killer, Ted, Ted Bundy. Bundy. There we go. Jinx! (laughs) So, um, yeah, they really don't know what happened to her, but her body was found by a truck driver in a dumping area in Warwick off Telmore Road. It was determined that she had been hit over the head with a rock or stone. Hmm. The police, um, a police officer in an article that I read said, the best way I can say it is that she was severely beaten to death. After this, the police started to interrogate everyone she knew, including her family, her boyfriend, co-workers, and students at the beauty school that she was attending, but it didn't lead to anything, and the case just went cold. In 2010, they decided to reopen the case in a very odd way and created a Facebook page to get people talking about the case again. Huh. I'm assuming that it was basically the idea was to get people talking and the killer might be on there. Yeah. Because... A lot of times, if it's especially if it's a serial killer, mm-hmm. they love to insert themselves in the investigation. Mm. So I think that's probably what they were doing. Uh, they were uh, pretty close-lipped about it, but they did say that they had an informant who led them to a suspect. Really? Yes. That's impressive. Uh, this unnamed suspect was in jail at the time uh, he was fingered for the crime uh, for felony assault, but also had a rap sheet with other assaults against women and also murder charges. Also a pretty good candidate in other ways. Oh, yeah. This man, or at least I'd assume it was a man, was released from prison in 2012 after spending around 20 years there, but pretty much immediately committed another crime and went back to jail. So obviously this is not someone who can be rehabilitated. No. I think we've pretty much proven that one, guys. Just keep him there. I'm going to quote directly from my source for a moment just to explain what I'm seeing in my head when I read this. So this is from turnto10.com. 
and they said, quote, Pierce, who I'm assuming is the detective, paid him a visit and described a game of cat and mouse. The detective quizzed the suspect. The suspect, in turn, wanted to know more about the police investigation. All I can see in my head when I think about this is Anthony Hopkins and Jodie freaking Foster. <laughs> I'm just imagining him being like, oh, I'll give you this, Clarice, but you need to, you know, oh. So basically, they're saying that this guy did know Kathy, too, by the way. Oh. Uh, briefly. And that he may have been trying to date her. Kathy's mother did tell police then about someone who had been following her, describing him as, quote, a creep in West Warwick on a motorcycle, end quote. Wow. Uh, okay. Yeah. That seems kind of important. Yeah. I don't believe that she's... Like, the article made it seem like she didn't say it back then. Yeah. Because they said, like, that there were absolutely no leads back then. She may have, and the police may have been Just keeping been like, that whatever. information yeah. back from the public. It's possible. Yeah. So in what seems like a good turn of events here, this suspect did own a motorcycle back then in 86 and was friends with Kathy's cousin. Oh. So it's a possibility that it could be him. He's 50 now, but he would have been 18 at the time of the murder and is still in jail today. They tried to prosecute him on this murder as well after they found out about him, but their efforts have been stalled. Uh, But they're hoping that they'll still be able to get this guy. Uh, So this one looks like it might actually get solved at some point, which is pretty cool. Bit of a happier note than the stories you previously told me. Exactly. Uh, those are my four stories for this week, and although I don't know this for a fact, I would absolutely assume that at least the first three, if not all four, of these to be the work of a possible serial killer who is still out there. Think about it. So the two murders right away in 1980, and the 80s was the decade for serial killers, definitely. Then nothing for five years, which seems like a cool-down period, which is pretty standard. Then there's another murder and another murder the following year. They're all young women. All were killed in Rhode Island, all around the same age. Um, Our first three seem to be walking alone. There's also the weirdness that uh, the first three that I mentioned all had the same first and last, like their first and last names both had the same letter, starting letter, which, I mean, that's probably coincidence. Really? Yeah. Roseanne Robinson. Yeah. Diane Drake and Hillary Hallowell. That's, that seems such a weird coincidence. It does seem like a weird coincidence, but just what the fuck. <laughs> um, also, when looking at the girls, they had like a sort of similar look about them, too, mm. um, to see in pictures. Um, so, I mean, that part is probably a coincidence with the names, like I said, but it's still just weird. And I would pretty much stake my life on at least the first two being... Related. Yeah, absolutely. If it is a serial killer, this guy would have to be highly intelligent and highly organized because you don't stay uncaught for that long. And most likely he would have been the same in the same age range as his victims, or at least no older than his mid-30s at the time of the original crimes, Okay, I would say. I also feel that with at least the first two victims I talked about, where people seem to feel that the police didn't really do their job very well, that it could honestly have been a police officer involved. Like what happened not too long ago with the Golden State Killer, Mm -hmm. Joseph D'Angelo. Police DNA is just disregarded completely as a sample of no interest on crime scenes. So all their DNA that they leave on the crime scene is taken out of the equation. Mm. Um, Which is why he got away with it for so long. Because his DNA was just, yep. So what do you think? (sighs) That's a tough one. I do kind of think 
that the first two could totally be related because they seem so so similar and they won't happen months apart yeah and they seem to be kind of in the same area of rhode island too well i mean rhode island is all in the same area of rhode island it is so small (laughs) (laughs) that's fair but um i don't know the last one kind of seems a little different to me and that might be this guy who's in jail already yeah and i think it could just be an outlier that's what i was thinking too i think the last one might be separate but i mean the the first three like the main cause of death for each one was strangulation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so. there seemed to be this thing where it's like the, they were taken. Yep. Kept exactly. somewhere for at least a period of time rather than like killed on the spot and moved. You exactly. Know? Yeah. So that seems like a very, like you said, organized kind of killer. But yeah, it'd be interesting to see. I know I always find it fascinating cooldown periods because it's always like when you, when you uh, notice them in true crime documentation and stuff like that it's always like that's when they were in jail or or yeah something, something else like happened mm-hmm. and then there's just weird ones where it's like did this per- did this did the killer die yeah because all of a sudden the murders just, just stop, stop and completely. you're like that's weird very weird like i think of jack the ripper a lot for that where it's like all of a sudden it just stops it and it's like well he did but that's there, why they stopped there <laughs> is the theory with jack the ripper that uh he's actually hh H. holmes no and that he came over to america no. From England after, you know, and that's why the, the crime stopped there. Mm-hmm. And then H.H. Holmes' crimes picked up in here. I, I, I well, that's a delightful... And there's also another guy they say that about, too, that came to America and was doing all this, so... There's a delightfully fancy, like a delightful fancy to that story about the H.H. Holmes theory, but there's far too much evidence yeah. that H.H. Holmes was Herman Mudgeon, and, like, we can trace Herman Mudgeon's life pretty well yeah, that's through true. that time period, so... I'm okay with saying that's not true. But, yeah, but um, it is an interesting theory. Yes, I, I've of watched course. probably everything on Jack the Ripper ever made, just because it's such an interesting case. And God, Whitechapel must have been really, really horrible to live yeah, in. Yeah, it's just uh, I see. Whereas I like, uh, I think I mentioned to you before, like when I first uh, found the true crime encyclopedia that my, my aunt gave me, and it was like called Blood Layers and Bad Men, mm-hmm. and one of the first stories about a killer that fascinated me was H.H. Holmes because it was so weird. Yeah. And, like, the whole idea of, like, the murder house and, like, World's Fair and also, like, just all of the the things that kind of wrap into that tale is very interesting. So oh, that yeah. I love it because, like, Jack the Ripper, it's, like, a story about a killer on the verge of modernity. And it's kind of like if Jack the Ripper had been killing, you know, 10, 15 years later, there would have been way more oh, yeah. tools at the police's disposal to track him down. Versus, like, H.H. Holmes, who was literally using, like, the idea of, like, mobility that's part of modern life. Like, you just need a job, you go off to the city, whatever. And that mm-hmm. was, like, his perfect, like, way to find people to murder. I'm like, that's so exactly chilling to me. Yeah. But, yeah, you might have a serial killer in Rhode Island. Yeah, so Rhode Islanders, please be safe. Um, I mean, it doesn't seem like this person's doing anything anymore. But still, just, you, you can never be too careful. And again, I'd like to say if you have any information about any of these crimes, please don't hesitate to contact the police. Uh, my sources for this week were WPRI for the Roseanne Robinson part of the story, Web Sleuths for Diane Drake, as well as an article from The Quill from 1981, which is a newspaper from the college that she attended called Roger Williams University. I used Reddit for the Hillary Hello one. And for Kathy Perry, I used TurnTo10.com which I think is a news channel website, as well as Reddit and NBCnews.com. Cool. All right. I guess we'll take a short break. We'll take our break. And uh, come back with 
paranormal story for you. I can't wait. I want you to scare the pants off of me. I, I will say, little spoiler alert, there is a beating death in my paranormal story. Oh, great. So, be forewarned. Well, we can look forward to that. <sighs> Snacks. Snacks. And we are back. We're back. With more fun and frights. More fun and frights in Rhode Island. Best state ever. Mm-hmm. Sorry, other states. Get over it, other states. Well, you know we what? You. Rhode Island is actually not like we don't have that many people that listen in Rhode Island. Uh-huh. But I think it's like the third or fourth really? as far as like listeners go. That's because they're tiny but mighty. Yeah. Connecticut was like a huge one too. And California, weirdly enough, is big. Well, I feel like that could be part of our demographic. Could be. All right. So paranormal story away. All right. Let's go. So our stop today is in Cranston, Rhode Island. I don't know where that is. Uh, it's kind of near Providence. Sort okay. Of. It was first settled in the 18th, or sorry, it was first settled in the 1640s. I was like, wow, it's relatively new. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was first settled in the 1640s, so it's a pretty old community. There's about 80,000 people who live in Cranston today, making it one of the larger cities in Rhode Island. Okay. Cranston was actually chosen as one of the top 100 places to live in the United States, according to Money Magazine back in like 2006 or so. That's cool. Well, if you have the money to live there, probably, because New England is so expensive. It can be expensive, that's, that's for like, sure. That's like, I love New England, and I would love to live in New England, but there are two downsides that I see to living in New England. One, too much money. Mm. Two, too horrible of a winter. We already have bad winters in Pennsylvania, but yeah, New England winters are like a million times worse. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Pennsylvania is as far north as I could ever live. Me too. <laughs> I'm just too. I'm not cold enough of a, and I can't deal with the cold. I might do like what the the rich people used to do, um, in like the 1800s. Like snowbird it. And just be like, I'm gonna have a summer home in Rhode Island, <laughs> <laughs> where it's lovely and every place is a beach. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. In Cranston, we are going to visit the museum and historical state called the Governor William Sprague Mansion, uh, which is our destination for today's story. I believe it's pronounced Sprague. Bit of an odd name. Sprague, Sprague. Sprague. Yeah, yeah, something. I'll go with Sprague. If I am incorrect, please, Rhode Islanders, let me know. Um, so the mansion itself was the birthplace of four generations of the Sprague family. And the Spragues were a pretty prominent New England family. And like any large, prominent New England family, they had their fair share of tragedy and drama. The family's rise in America actually started when three brothers, William, Ralph, and Richard Sprague, arrived in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1629 and were charged with expanding the colony westward and fostering peace with the local tribes. Okay. So they actually helped the Massachusetts Bay Colony expand beyond its borders, um, move out to where Charlestown is now in Massachusetts. Okay. So pretty cool. Um, as the New England colonies grew, so did the Sprague family. Members of the family fought in the American Revolution and wrote the Rhode Island branch of the family eventually built a business empire, produced two governors, and okay. so, so much more. So originally, the Governor William Sprague Mansion was a farmstead house that was built in 1790 by William Sprague. William Sprague himself tried his hand at farming, but he had an eye to expand his business beyond farming. So in 1807, he turned a grist mill on his property that used the flow of the Pocasset River to become a cotton mill. So he switched from grinding like grains and things in the Mm -hmm. grist mill to using that water power to make it into a cotton mill so he could produce yarn and carding carding yarn producing it into yarn eventually making textiles okay 
later when his son, William II, came of age. And I still don't fully understand what the hell textiles are. It's like cotton weaving, anything woven, really. Okay. So, like, a textile mill would make everything from, you know, wool to cotton. Um, the Sprague family itself actually became famous for making calico print. Okay. So they would weave it, and then they would dye it yeah. in the calico pattern. And then that material then gets sent off to milliners and dressmakers and okay. you know, clothing sounds, manufacturers. That sounds all right. Fair warning, there are a lot of Williams in this story because okay. that's a very, very popular name. Good. You're getting into the <laughs> crap that I normally get in these stories. And I think it's important to understand um, some of the history of the Sprague family who lived in this house to understand the later hauntings that occurred there. Ooh. Yeah. So, William II, who is the son of William I, who built the, the house. Really? Yeah. So it's amazing how it happens like Wow. That. <laughs> when William II came of age, he started working with his father to expand the business and he really upped the ante by purchasing water-fed power looms and building additional cotton mills around the Cranston area. Okay. So by 1832, William II owned roughly 6% of all the looms operating in Rhode Island. And like I mentioned before, he actually was the first manufacturer to introduce calico prints to New England. So before that period, uh, before like the, the 1830s, you would have to special order it from England or... Some other part of the world, they didn't actually produce it locally. In oh, England. neat. So yeah. they were ahead of their time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So by the time William II died in 1836, the business then passed to his two sons. Surprise, surprise, named William III. Third? Ooh. And his brother, Amasa. Okay. Normal name, William. <laughs> and then Amasa just gets Amasa. thrown out there. Amasa, I actually had to look it up because I was like, that's an interesting name. Is that Native American? That seems odd that a... Yankee would name his child. Oh, no, it's from the Bible. (laughs) It's a biblical name. (laughs) My God, I don't remember who that was in the Bible. Uh, It was a son of Abigail. So it's like somewhere in the Old Testament, Uh, one of those like... Yeah, I vaguely remember Abigail. She's one of the ones that you're just like, let's just, you know, move on. Moving on. Yeah. So, William III was busy building a career in politics at the time. He had already served as a member of the Rhode Island House of Representatives, including acting as a Speaker of the House, from 1832 to 1835. And he was actually a congressman in the U.S. House at the time of his father's death. Oh, okay. Yep. So he was in Washington representing Rhode Island. Amasa, meanwhile, uh, kind of handled the day-to-day business of running the mills. Uh, he also expanded the family home into a far- from a farmstead into the mansion that it is today. So oh, adding cool. additional wings and building it into basically a pre-Civil War mansion. Sounds fun. Uh, Amasa did consult with William on larger business moves since they were still co-owners in the business, but for the most part, he took care of the day-to-day. The brothers continued to grow their business together in the 1830s and 1840s. Now, in 1838, William was elected governor of Rhode Island. Then he was elected to the U.S. Senate, representing Rhode Island, in 1842. And the A&W Sprague Manufacturing Company, as their business was called, which I love that it was a and <laughs> Now I want root beer, thank you. (laughs) Uh, The company was at a really critical turning point in the early 1840s. William saw the opportunity to really expand beyond Rhode Island uh, and move into different businesses that would kind of support what what they were already doing in textiles and dyeing production, things like that. Whereas Amasa was pretty content with the size of the business as it was, and he wanted to, to continue to build their market share up the textile industry in Rhode Island. Well, eventually, and unfortunately, the brothers were not able to resolve their disagreement because on New Year's Eve, 1843, 
there was a tragedy at the family estate. While walking home, one of the Sprague family servants found, a bad, found the badly beaten body of Amasa Sprague. So this is where it gets a little gruesome, so prepare yourself. Investigators determined that Amasa, who had earlier that evening enjoyed a large family dinner at the mansion, went for a walk afterwards, or a constitutional, as I like to call post-dinner walk. Constitutional? Yeah, constitutional. I never heard that before. Yeah, you go for a walk and it gets your constitution rolling so you can digest better. Right. They're lovely. Did he have to make a constitution check? Possibly. Constitution savings throw, perhaps? He did not go well for him. (laughs) So on his walk, it was theorized he encountered at least two perpetrators who shot him. Amasa had a bullet lodged in his forearm and then beat him to death with some kind of blunt instrument. Oh, this is turning out to be a lovely story. Yeah. Very, very lovely. Uh, Amasa was pretty a pretty stout and strong guy at 40, 45, and he definitely fought back, which only seemed to make the beating even more severe. Uh, it was so severe that his face was mangled so badly that investigators needed the local doctor to confirm his identity. Oh, shit. Because they couldn't tell. Yeah. Yeah, so it was pretty awful. Now, investigators were pretty puzzled over the motive because it wasn't robbery. Amasa still had a large amount of cash on his person as well as his pocket watch when they found his body. Okay. Uh, However, there were a couple suspect people from Amasa's public and personal life that they considered. First, there was the idea that Amasa's murder could have been politically motivated because of his involvement, along with William and one of their brother-in-laws, of setting up the arrest of Thomas Dorr in October of 1843. Now, this greatly upset the local Cranston Irish community, and that's because Dorr was elected as a rival governor in Rhode Island, and Dorr basically promised that if he was elected governor, he would provide universal male suffrage in the state. Um, At the time, Rhode Island only allowed white men who owned land to vote. Okay, yeah, seems standard for the time. Yep. It kept a lot of the power in the hands of, quote-unquote, the Yankee class, so the old New England families. And at this time, the 1830s and 40s especially, there were growing Irish and Italian immigrant communities. And they tended to be folks who worked in factories like the Spragues, and they couldn't vote, and they couldn't improve their lives at all, so they got really frustrated. So when Thomas Dorr came along and offered this opportunity, he got a lot of support. However, it ended up splitting the gubernatorial vote, and so he was kind of almost like a renegade governor. He was like chased out of Rhode Island by the other governor who had the backing of Washington. Okay. So when he returned then to Rhode Island to try to resolve this conflict between the governorships, uh, Amasa, his brother, and his brother-in-law helped arrange his arrest. So when Thomas Dorr was arrested, only a few months before, it kind of caused this political uproar. So investigators suspected that maybe some locals who were upset about that tracked him down and beat him to death. Oh, great. Okay. So that's one possibility. You're trying to make things better. How dare you? Yeah. Then there's the possibility that his brother, William, who we disagreed a bit about how to run the business, may have been involved in Amasa's death. Oh, shit. Yeah. Think about it. He's... I don't know. I was getting Cain and Abel flashes in my head, so <laughs> but that could have been that we talked about the Bible earlier. Well, you definitely have, like, William, who's a super motivated guy. Like, he's a governor. He's amassing lots of power with their family. And then there's Amasa, who's like, no, no, I think the money that we have and the power we have locally is good enough. I don't think we should go anymore. We shouldn't stretch it anymore. Well, investigators kind of came to disregard this theory because when William heard about his brother's death, he resigned his seat in the Senate to come home and lead the investigation in his brother's murder. 
Okay, well, that can go two ways. Yeah. Because, like I said, they like to insert themselves in the investigation. Exactly. Uh, or it could also be the fact that he was politically powerful and a wealthy man, and he had to do some damage control or deflect attention from himself. You know how it goes. Yeah, could be anything. Yeah, it could be anything. So, with William now involved in the investigation, uh, the investigators followed a different lead. And, pressured by William, they eventually arrested the Gordon brothers, who had a business dispute with Amasa. Now, the Gordon brothers were three brothers who emigrated from Ireland, and they ran a local tavern that was attached to their home. Amasa had recently used his money and power in the local government to get the Gordon's brothers' liquor license stripped from their tavern. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. And he, Amasa did this because he felt that the Irish workers he employed were frequenting the tavern too much and that they would <laughs> sneak off from his mills to go drink during the day. Well, I'm sorry, but um, yeah, as we both know from being Irish. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so the Gordon brothers, there's three of them. They were all arrested and tried. However, only one brother, John, was found guilty. And he was summarily executed in 1845 for Amasa's murder. There's a lot of articles I came across in my research that said that this is probably all crap. And the brother didn't kill Amasa. And this was more of a result of the anti-Roman Catholic and anti Irish immigrant bias that was That's, very prevalent. Yeah, I was in about Rhode to Island. say nobody liked the Irish when they came over here. Like that yep. was a big thing. But it was also like the fact that they were like the people who were sitting on the jury were all these like Yankee community mm-hmm. white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. True. Who had just put down basically a you know usurpation of power by the people who didn't own land in Rhode Island who were probably immigrants that they were in need of to like run their factories so yeah a lot of class struggle very interesting anyway so john gordon was executed and interestingly enough he was actually the last person executed in rhode island wow yeah all this fervor and kind of the rigged sentence he got kind of led to a lot of protests and an unrest in rhode island so much so that the state eventually abolished the death penalty in 1852 which is only about seven years after yeah. John was executed. So, so to this day, they still don't have the nope. death penalty? Oh, okay. It's been reinstated here and there, but he's the last person executed. Okay. So with Amasa's death, William took over as the sole head of the family business and continued to expand and grow into more businesses that he wanted to previously. Those included real estate ventures around New England, banking, and railroad investments. Now, when William suddenly died in 1856, the company's ownership passed to his son and Amasa's two sons, who were, can you guess what their names were? William the Fourth and something else. That's right, William the Fourth and Amasa the Second. Oh, and Amasa the Second. All right. The Spikes were extremely creative. Uh, apparently, in naming wow, their where sons. are they getting these names? <laughs> now, the most interesting sprag of, of the generation is definitely William the Fourth. He's known as Rhode Island's boy governor. Oh, yes. okay. Because in 1860, when he was only 29 years old, he became the youngest man to be elected to the governorship. Nice. Now, the Civil War started in 1861, while William was governor, and he promised Rhode Island support to Lincoln and raised a brigade of men that he joined to fight under General Burnside at the First Battle of Bull Run. Oh, okay. Kind of cool, right? Yeah. So, during battle, he's acting as an aide to General Burnside because he's, you know, kind of fancy man. He's governor. He's the boy governor. Yeah. And his horse gets shot up from beneath him. Uh-oh. And this kind of led him to be like, wow, this war thing is pretty serious. And after the battle, he was offered a commission as a brigadier general for volunteer forces, but he declined it, basically saying, no, 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 I'm going to 
go back to my job as governor. That's where I'm, I'm really needed. This is William the Fourth. Yes, William the Fourth. He's like, I've had my taste of action. It wasn't fun. Yep. Let's just, yeah. However, by most accounts that I came across, William the Fourth was kind of a jerk to anybody who he saw as like lower than him on the oh, social no. ladder. Oh, yeah, no. and there was even a couple of rumors at the time of his election that his family money is what bought him the governorship. Like they paid people to vote for him. But I mean, what else is new? Exactly, in the that's how it always of, works. Like, the nineteenth century, right? <laughs> so the other funny thing is that so he gets offered this commission, and he's like, "No, no, no, I'm going to go home to Rhode Island," and the reason he initially had like ridden out with the brigade that he raised was because he thought the civil war would only really last 48 hours like it would be this battle of bull run it'd be glory and fame and, and then, then it would be done and yeah it'd be done that's what i figured with him just being like nah, no i, no, I don't no, want to no. do that i figured it was pretty much like oh glory and then it was like oh i have to do stuff yeah i could get hurt really. nah he's it so when the professor wins the, wins the battle of bull run he basically decides to bail yeah and that was also the sentiment of many of the men who served in his brigade. Oh, no. <laughs> so according to this great article from the Cranston Herald, I just want to read this quote because it's pretty funny. Quote, serving as a leader for the 1st Rhode Island Regiment, all of the men under him packed up and left camp. Furious, he, William IV, demanded that more truths be sent. When none came, he too packed up and went home. <laughs> he spoke discourteously to those employed in his family mills and talked down to people on the lower rungs of the social ladder. Oh, great. So sounds like a nice guy. He's a real jerk, <laughs> and to most people. Uh, however, there are accounts that could be very charming and even debonair. So basically, most he assholes sa- are. Yes, he sounds <laughs> like your typical spoiled ass rich kid. Yeah, and I'm like, ugh, he's like the 19th century worst version of the one percent. That's pretty much true. Yeah. So more about William the Fourth because he was kind of a jerk who had an f- interesting life. All right, tell me more. So during this time. He ends up spending more time in Washington, D.C. because he's a, you know, governor. Mm-hmm. And he uses his social charms and money to gain an introduction to one Miss Kate Chase, a.k.a. the Belle of the North. Hmm. And she was the daughter of Solomon P. Chase, who served as Lincoln's Treasury Secretary and eventually went on to become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. And she was considered one of the leading socialites in Washington, um, a woman of great beauty, very charming, um, she was kind of like, um, I don't want to say Paris Hilton, because that's not quite right, but think more like Jackie Kennedy. Okay. Like very much like that glamour gal of like the political set. That was Kate. And she had her choice of men to marry, but she settled on William. You know, I believe Jackie uh, Kennedy and JFK were married in Rhode Island, I believe. Huh. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So... William and Kate get married. They get married in D.C., actually. Um, Wait, William and Kate? Yes, William and Kate. <laughs> <laughs> As I was writing that, I kept writing William and Kate, William and Kate, and I'm like, that's kind of funny. Like, Why does this sound familiar, huh? Just flows for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> so they got married in 1863, and they had four children. However, as the years pass, they both have numerous affairs. It was pretty much well known. William even wrote a letter to Kate, like, after she gave birth to their first child, their son. Mm-hmm. He was kind of like, do what you want. I'm going to be busy with my other social engagements. Oh. A.K.A. His other, other girls. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which kind of led to things getting worse. Eventually, Kate herself started to have dalliances outside of their marriage. And then things kind of came to a head for the couple in the panic of 1873, which was this really big financial depression mm-hmm. that kind of hit um, especially the economy of the U.S. and Europe at the time. And it pretty much wiped out a big chunk of William's fortune 
and the Sprague family empire. Okay. So they weren't totally poor, but they definitely took a big hit. Um, and then that extra stress at that point, William and Kate are living apart, occasionally seeing each other when they had to. She primarily has custody of their three younger children, which are all girls, and he is raising their son, Willie. Well, of course, he only cares about the boy child. Mm-hmm. Who's also a William. William the fifth. But he goes by Willie, thankfully. So the final straw in their marriage was when Kate had an affair with New York Senator Roscoe Conlon. How dare she have How an affair? She? Well, and it would have been fine. However, it was highly publicized. Oh, okay. Including an incident that occurred in 1879 when William confronted Kate and her lover at the Sprague's Rhode Island summer home and pursued Conlon with a shotgun. <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's something. <laughs> I found a great account, a contemporary account from the New York Times from October of 1909 that kind of was looking back on, on the story uh, because uh, there was a commemoration for Conlon, like had some kind of something built for him. Yeah. So they were talking about the late Senator Roscoe Conlon. Um, quote, he was a frequent visitor to Kenanchech, which is the Sprague's estate, and was unpleasantly conspicuous in the proceedings which ended in the divorce of the Spriggs. Mr. Conlon was once forbidden by Mr. Sprigg to come to Kenanchech. Despite this, however, the executive, Sprague, later met the senator, Conlon, on the estate coming from the rear of the house. Some have reported it was the senator who had jumped from a window and came after him with the governor's old Civil War musket in his hands. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like, oh, whoops, jumping yeah, out right. the window. <laughs> so about three years later, the William and Kate's divorce is official. Um, that whole divorce proceedings was also very, very high profile. It popped up a lot in the press. It was sort of like the divorce of the Civil War era. Yeah. It's interesting, too, to note that when Conlon passed away in 1888, Kate was devastated and tried to actually go to his funeral, but his widow, who he was estranged from at the time, uh-huh. forbade her. Like, she was not allowed oh. to see him. So it's kind of like you had the sense that maybe their affair kind of carried on for a couple of years afterwards. Yeah. So that's kind of rough and sucks. That does suck. Then, more tragedy for Kate and William. Uh, in 1890, the couple's only son, Willie, committed suicide at the age of 25. And true to form, at Willie's funeral, William IV was still an asshole. And while he initially had agreed to allow Kate to see their son's body before they closed up the coffin and buried him in the Sprague family tomb, he reneged on that and the family kept her away from her son's body prior to interment. She never oh, got to say goodbye to her son or see him one last time. That is, that's awful. Yep, pretty awful. So naturally, wow, Kate was, com- jerk. yeah, she was completely devastated by this. I would be too. And she just retired from public life. She did continue to live in her father's estate outside of D.C. Um, with her disabled daughter, Kitty. However, she did eventually move back into some of the Sprague's property and she died penniless in 1899. But Kitty's such like an upper class yes. nickname, you well, know? That was the daughter who was mentally um, disabled. Oh. Yeah. William, meanwhile, he remarried back in 1883. Of course he did. Yeah. Totally not a divorce rebound, I swear. It's just something he had going on. Of course. And then he eventually continued to be shitty throughout the rest of his life, occasionally getting involved in Rhode Island politics until eventually a fire at the Sprague Mansion kind of caused him to be like, man, I'm over it. And he took all the rest of his money and moved to Paris, uh. Uh, where he died in 1915. With all that 19th century drama and misery and sketchiness in the Sprague family, it's little wonder that their ancestral home has been the source of reports of paranormal occurrences 
since the early 20th century. Oh, okay. So the Governor William Sprague Mansion had its first haunting reported in 1925. And it was the specter of an elegantly dressed man who appears on the main staircase of the home. He's been repeatedly seen over the years, and many visitors believe that the specter is actually a massa sprig. Okay. So they think his ghost comes back and walks up and down the stairs. I would have thought the specter may have been Phil. <laughs> wrong state, wrong decade. <laughs> um, other visitors have also reported an icy presence in the wine cellar. Um, so after the Sprague family stopped living in the house, it still remained part of the company's assets. Okay. So they would house people. Like eventually, eventually, the Sprague company meant, became like this, like uh, print works, kind of gave up textiles, started doing printing, things like that. Also printing on textiles, but also yeah. doing paper printing. It was, And they used the mansion as like housing for some of the, you know, plant managers, things like that. Okay. So in the 1930s, there was a plant manager living there with his wife, and she was in the wine cellar of the home when she suddenly felt someone brush past her. And it freaked her out when she refused to go back down to the wine cellar. Oh, great. Yeah, I probably wouldn't either. Yeah. And oddly enough, similar experiences over the years have happened to people in the wine cellar where all of a sudden they'll get really cold and they'll feel like almost like like they're being brushed or grabbed by something and it's ice cold. That's not fun. One man even reported seeing a flimsy white thing, quote unquote, brush his arm. Flimsy white thing. Probably his wife's dress. (laughs) Could be. So the flimsy white apparition is like a big thing at the mansion. It's been reported by numerous guests, by volunteers with the Cranston Historical Society. Um, And the Cranston Historical Society actually purchased and restored the mansion in the 1960s when it was under threat of demolition. So they bought it in 1967, so restored it all. Their volunteers have lots of interesting stories. Uh, One volunteer who was working in the house during the renovations or the restorations, I should say, was in a small closet-type room, closet-like room, they described it as in the articles that I read. The volunteers had dubbed it the doll room. Okay. Which, that's one, already creepy. creepy, yeah. Even creepier. The reason they called it the doll room is because that's where there was this, like, storage space for these porcelain dolls and marionettes, <laughs> which is like, mm, that, Those are the two creepiest kinds of dolls. Nope. The you... doll room, which is a doll closet, nope. I told you about that story, right, um, where I stayed at my friend's house. And the room that I had to sleep in was her grandmother's doll room. What? No, tell me more. Yeah, I had to sleep in that, and I kept waking up and being were looking like, around. Were they like lining the walls? Like were they? Yes, porcelain? it was oh. all. They were all porcelain, and they were surrounding the whole room. And I did not like it one bit. And I was like, "Should I sleep with the light on?" And then I'm like, "No, then I can see their faces." <laughs> That's such a such a dilemma. Yeah, right. <laughs> but I'm like, what if they attack me? Did I ever tell you about my freshman year college roommate? I don't think so. Mm. I had a similar experience all through freshman year. Aside from the fact that she wore her key around her neck and would always lock me out because I was not that organized. Oh no. Um, but she had a like collection of dolls. Yeah. And other stuffed animals. So it wasn't just dolls, but there were some creepy ass dolls like from her childhood that she would put in her bed every morning. And then take them off and put them on her desk chair every night. And, like, would make her bed every day. Meanwhile, there's me rolling around, like, this, like, dirty, like, punky riot girl kid who's like, I'm bad. I don't know how to make beds. Yeah. We were a little mismatched. Yeah. I, I would think so with this doll girl. Oh, but I had a couple starts when I would wake up and i see the dolls. I'd be like, ugh. Yeah. I would, too. <laughs> oh. Anyway, back to the doll room in the Governor Williamsburg mansion. So this guy's working in the doll room. 
And he's like, I don't know what he was doing, but he was, you know, surrounded by all these creepy old dolls and marionettes. And all of a sudden, the lights begin to flicker off and on. And while nope. this is happening, he sees a flimsy white apparition float into the room and then out of the room. Okay, take the dolls with you, please. Nope, nope, goodbye. <laughs> and my volunteering days are over. Right? <laughs> so these power fluctuations that this volunteer described, um, they're a pretty common experience at the mansion. The lights often flicker off and on. There's power fluctuations that'll turn different things off and on. Visitors report hearing phantom footsteps and seeing orbs of light in rooms that shouldn't have any lights on. And several of the overnight guests who have stayed at the the mansion have had their bedding ripped off of them in the middle of the night. Nope. Again, nope. (laughs) And, like, I was thinking about just, like, the stories that people would tell about having that experience of getting your bedding ripped off. And they're like, no, it wasn't like it got pulled back. It was like a full, like, whoosh. just whoosh. That's what I'm imagining in my head. So I'm on the right track, I guess. Yeah. So all this seems like your average haunted house, right? Yeah. Well. That was until Uh a caretaker who was living at the house in 1968 decided, you know what? I'm going to have a seance. Great. (laughs) Let's stir some shit up. What could go wrong, right? Exactly. So using a Ouija board. Ooh, my favorite, of Mm -hmm. course. The seance made contact with two spirits. One they identified as Massa Sprague. A Massa Sprague and the other claimed to be a former butler on the estate named Charlie. Now, Charlie told the seance participants that he had always hoped that his daughter would marry the son of his wealthy employer, but that never came to be. Okay. Uh, Then, all of a sudden, after Charlie tells his story, the board repeatedly spells out the phrase, my land. Ooh. It just was spelled, my land, my land, my land. Yeah, super creepy. Oh, speaking of um, Ouija boards real quick. Mm -hmm. Guess what I uh, was supposed to watch last night, but probably will watch tonight after you go. What? Which board? Yeah! I'm finally going to do it. Tani Katane, here I come. I'm so excited to see With get her full-on ginger on minge. Oh, girl. Oh, love that ginger minge. But <laughs> seriously, there's a really great scene. I think it's on a dock. I can't remember if it's which board one or which board two, but it's fucking creepy oh, as hell. Sequel? Okay. Oh, yeah. The sequel is like, I don't know. But which board? Thumbs up. You won't. I'm not going to lie, it's not the best movie. Of but course it's not the best movie. I've seen the previews. It's, 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 worth, it, it's worth it. From watching the previews, giggle. I realized that I have seen it at some point <laughs> in my life before. I feel like it used to be one of those weird late night repeats on like I think cable. so. That's how I saw Waxwork and that movie was terrible. <laughs> but I loved it. So. My mom and I watched it late at night when I had to be at like school, I think, and she had to be at work. And it was playing on TV along with... Um, the phone sex op, uh, phone sex operator, like, call lines. <laughs> uh, like, constantly, every commercial was that. It was like, call us now. We're just 18. 1900. We'll yeah. talk. We'll chat. Yeah. It's, I'm not really a man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all those. We're here waiting. <laughs> there was this song that was actually like, You don't have to be alone tonight. <laughs> just call me. Pick up the phone. Yeah, it was, like, really oh my bad. God. <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead with your story. Oh, yes. Speaking of which. We have stories that we're telling. We forgot. So the the Ouija board starts spelling out my land, my land. It kind of creeps everybody out the seance. And then finally the caretaker asks the two souls what they can do to give the souls peace. And the board spells out, tell my story, and then stops working. Well, then tell me who the hell you are so I can actually do that. Well, she's Charlie. Charlie the butler. Oh, but still Charlie? I thought that would have been another spirit. It, were, it could have been a massa, but either way. I thought it was way. possibly like some like Native American person that whose grave the house is built over, most likely. Who, well, I don't know. Well, a la Poltergeist? The caretaker thought it was Charlie. 
Okay. So that's exactly what they did. As Charlie's story spread, the Cranston Historical Society decided to throw an annual Charlie the Ghost party at the mansion. Nice. It's pretty cool. Uh, I would go to that. Yeah, they still hold it, and you can go every October. It's a fundraiser that those. Be like my dream of going to Nearly Headless Nick's death day. That'd be kind of cool. But um, so the cool thing about the party is that's still at the mansion, and they will do seances sometimes. They have psychics come in and mediums. And they'll also have, like, magicians and stuff like that, which is kind of great. Like stage magicians? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And it changes year to year. And occasionally throughout the year, they may do special performances, all depending on what the year holds for the mansion. Because people also rent out the mansion for, like, weddings and things like that, which is kind of cool. They'll have us perform one year. Maybe. We'll come. We'll do a live podcast. We will. Wink, wink. I have to say wink, wink, because you can't see my face. Anyway, (laughs) at these events, though, there's still hijinks. So people oh, who've attended in the past have... No, re- we have to go. I know. Like, people have reported seeing the flimsy white apparition, and a lot of people have reported feeling an icy cold hand touch them... Oh, no. Mm-hmm. ...as they walk through the house. So that's kind of crazy. That's... Yeah, I don't think I'd like that very much, but I still want to go. <laughs> well, you can uh, try to get tickets to attend the annual Charlie the Ghost Party. You check out the Cranston Historical Society's website for that. Uh, you can also visit and tour the mansion between April and November each year. The times and dates and the costs for the tours vary, but you can always check, again, the Cranston Historical Society website. We'll put it up on the website. Yeah, we'll, we'll add a link there. And yeah. it's a pretty cool place. Um, and then, so that's the story of the Governor William Sprague Mansion. And then I did find a delightful fun fact when I was researching the Sprague family. Okay. It is that Lucille Ball, Ooh. a.k.a. I Love Lucy fame, She's uh, got some splaining to do. She's a direct descendant of William Sprague. No way. Yes, the original William Sprague who came from... Or is it William Sprague or Richard Sprague? One of the Sprague brothers who came from England. She can trace her genealogy back That's through right. that family. That's so cool. Yeah. So the Spragues have given us not-so-stellar people like William Sprague IV, but amazing people like Lucille Ball. All I've got is that I'm related through marriage to Lorenzo Lamas. I mean... I got nobody. Really? No, my, my people were not famous. Oh. We are salt of the earth. Just just surviving. Yeah. You know. Anyway. Yeah. It's uh, all right. I still love you. Oh, thanks. I don't need your validation. No, I do. <laughs> I do. Uh, for my story today, uh, I did a lot of research from the City of Cranston website. They had a great, overall, pretty solid city website where they talked about the Spring Mansion. Of course, the Cranston Historical Society website was very handy resource, Wikipedia's always. Um, I found some great articles about Amasa, Amasa's murder on the New England Historical Society website. Cranston Herald was also a great resource for just articles about not only Car- Charlie the Ghost, but the Historical Society's refurbishment of the mansion. Historical Society websites in Rhode Island are awesome. My yeah. mom's part of the like the Historical Society. Um, she gets like the newsletter things and gives the money and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, it's awesome. Like they genuinely care about preserving their history there, which is I think fantastic, yeah. especially considering it's such a small state and they have so much history. Yeah. That it takes a lot of work. And last but not least, I found this amazing book by Patrick Connolly called The Makers of Modern Rhode Island. Okay. And it kind of walked me through the kind of political intrigues that happened with William III and Amasa as they were building the Sprague Empire. So, pretty interesting stuff. Well, I had fun this week. I did too. I hope everyone listening had fun. I hope so. And we'll be back next week with more Rhode Island fun where Nicole will tell her true crime and I will tell my paranormal. And I've got a 
good one, hopefully. I haven't researched it yet, but it sounded awesome when I read the blurb. I'm excited to see where you end up. Oh, yeah. It's going to be cool. All right, gang. If you liked today's episode, please rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, all of those awesome places. Wherever you... you listen. Exactly. Wherever you listen, feel free to share our podcast with your friends and family. Feel free to email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com with uh, your own paranormal stories, any suggestions, uh, comments, concerns, anything like that. Cute pictures of your pets, maybe, because we're still looking for those, too. I do have to say, uh, some of our Instagram followers post amazing pictures of their pets, and I heart them. Oh, do they? That's awesome. They're super cute. I I don't keep up with Instagram just because I don't know how to use it. (laughs) (laughs) I posted one thing on there. I was like, where is it? Wait, it posted to my story? How do I make it not post to my story? How do I do the other thing? Damn it, Nicole, you're just going to have to do it all. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mind. But, yeah, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Roadside Horror Show. And on Twitter at Roadside Horror, which I don't do much with. So, sorry if you're a Twitter user because I'm still working out, like, what do I do with this? How do I make it that short and still Mm -hmm. post something? Again, our email address is roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. You can also check out our website. I said that already. No, I didn't say that already. Never mind. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You can also check out our website at roadsidehorrorshow.podbean.com. Very good. Um, and also we'd like to thank Yoxbox Designs for our logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro songs. I think that's it. That's it. All right, gang. And we'd like to thank you for listening, of course. Yes, we couldn't do it without our lovely listeners. And I just want to say hello to, um, listeners in the two places that I really wanted to get to. Uh, so if you're still listening, anyway. Um, hello to our Canadian listeners. And hello to our Australian listeners now, too. Yeah, thanks for listening to our our humble podcast about these here United States. Exactly. All right, gang. Creep on, creep it on, and we'll talk to you next week. Later, Gator.